The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures. Stamping problems. You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The Hub is a space contemplating Ireland through the community. This created by Carl Sinn. The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Everybody. We're very, very pleased to have so many of you here this evening for the inaugural lectureship of Professor Andrew Murphy. Just some housekeeping beforehand. Um, please leave your masks on throughout the event so that we're compliant with COVID health guidelines. Um, there'll be a Q&A afterwards uh, with Professor Murphy. Please raise your hand and a mic will be brought to you and you may unmask yourself at that point. This event is being recorded, so bear that in mind um, when you're asking your questions and answers, keep them clean. And uh, the bathrooms, if you should need them, are this uh, one out that way, two out this way, and also the exits are both behind and in front of you. So, with that out of the way, welcome everybody um, to this inaugural lecture. Uh, we're so pleased that so many of you are here this evening, this cool, crisp, but beautiful November day here in Trinity. It's really special to be here in person today. Um, it's been almost two years since we've had an inaugural. The last one was uh, with Professor Ruth Karras from the Lecky Professorship in History. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Gail McElroy. I'm Dean of the Faculty of Arts, Humanities and Social Sciences here at Trinity. And welcome to this Long Room Hub, a beautiful building if you haven't been in it before. And thanks to the Long Room for hosting this event. Very special welcome to our provost, Professor Linda Doyle and to the other college officers who are here this evening, the Dean of Graduate Studies, Marquine Smith, uh, Professor David Shepherd, the senior lecturer, and also to the head of the School of English, uh, Professor Jarlath Killeen. For those of you for whom it is your first inaugural, just a tiny bit of background, although it will also have been explained in that leaflet that's on your seat. Um, these are significant events in an academic's career, and um, inaugural lectures provide newly appointed professors, well, COVID aside, newly appointed professors, <laughs> with the opportunity to showcase their research to the college community and also to the broader public. At Trinity College, these are ceremonial occasions. That's why we're both wearing gowns, a very fancy gown there from Professor Murphy. Mine's a little bit more modest. Um, this chair, this 1867 um, chair of English, is a really important chair in Trinity. Um, it's the first chair of um, English literature on the island, not, I believe, on the islands, that's a bit contested, but definitely on, on um, the island of Ireland. And um, the holder of the first post was a man by the name of Professor Edward Dowden, one of the most important literary critics of the 19th century, and very, very fundamental to the development of the discipline of um, English literature. As such, this endows this particular chair with a great deal of prestige. It's known globally, and uh, it's been held by many, many um, fine scholars in the intervening 150 years. Um, so um, other notable Shakespeare, Edward Dadden himself was a Shakespearean scholar. Um, I'm a political scientist, so I am a little, uh, <laughs> it's a little out of my depth, but nonetheless. And others who held this, who were Shakespearean scholars, include Philip Edwards and um, more recently, uh, Nicky Green. Um, this, um, <coughs> this chair, and obviously the other, uh, many, the other uh, members of the department, have gone on to make the School of English at Trinity one of the most outstanding schools in, um, of English in the world. It is ranked very, very highly, 25th in the world, 
and part of this is the contribution of chairs such as Professor Murphy. And I'm delighted to see so many um, of the staff of the Department of English here this evening. It's a testimony to your collegiality and your commitment to scholarship and excellence. Now, to our star of the evening, Professor Andrew Murphy. Andrew was born in Limerick, and I believe his aunt and uncle have travelled up for the evening, so welcome to them. Um, he did a stint in local government, those are my own interests, and, but then decided better of it, and went and did a BA here in Trinity in English and Psychology. I'm sure it was equally high points back in the day when you graduated in 86. And after yet another stint in local government, he decided it wasn't for him. He went and did an MA and PhD at Brandeis University in the United States. After this, he did a postdoc at Hertfordshire in the United Kingdom, and then he moved for 20 years to St. Andrews in Scotland. At St. Andrews, he was professor of English, head of the School of English, inaugural director of the Graduate School for Interdisciplinary Studies, and provost of St. Leonard's College. Like Edward Dowder, Dowden, the first holder of this chair, Professor Murphy has had a prolific career and has had a major impact on the discipline of English literature. His research covers a wide range of topics in the field of Shakespeare studies and Irish studies and the connections between the two. He's the sole author of multiple books, and I can't um, describe them all because we'd be here a long time, but he's very helpfully handed me one of them, which is now in its second edition. Shakespeare in Print, A History and Chronology of Shakespeare Publishing, published by Cambridge University Press, one of the preeminent university presses in all disciplines. First published in 2003, second edition revised and expanded and published earlier this year. I'm sure it's a bargain, and he uh, <laughs> <laughs> might give you a discount. <laughs> but anyway, I think it's important to note that this was described in the Times Literary Supplement Review as a formidable achievement, and in the journal Shakespeare Survey, as an extraordinary work of bibliographical scholarship, at once scrupulously accurate and thoroughly entertaining. <laughs> Other monographs include, just kind of as a testimony to the range of his scholarship, Ireland, Reading and Cultural Nationalism, 1790 to 1930, Shakespeare for the People, Working Class Readers, 1800 to 1900, both again with Cambridge University Press. A third monograph, but the Irish Sea Betwixt Us, Ireland, Colonialism and Renaissance Literature multiple edited volumes, and his current projects, because he has not uh, rested on his laurels by any means, include an edited volume, The Nation and British Literature and Culture, forthcoming yet again with Cambridge University Press, and an edition of Shakespeare's Henry V to be published by Cambridge in 2027. Tonight he's going to speak on Shakespeare from the periphery, which seems very apposite as we gather here in Dublin. With that, I will hand over to you, Professor Murphy. Thank you. Thank you very much, Gail, for that uh, very kind introduction. I should say that when Edward Dowden, the first holder of the 1867 chair, uh, was coming to the end of his life, uh, W.B. Yeats wrote to the provost of Trinity, suggesting that perhaps uh, Trinity might like to employ him as the 1867 chair, and the provost declined. Possibly, perhaps, uh, because uh, Yeats managed to misspell the word professor in his <laughs> uh, I'd like to just say a few words of thanks uh, before I begin uh, the talk. Um, can I say a very big thank you to Jade and Valerie from the faculty office and to Francesca from uh, the hub 
who have arranged this lecture and rearranged this lecture and <laughs> rearranged this lecture many, many times. I think there were points where we thought we wouldn't actually get to this point. Uh, so it's very nice to, to be here this evening and to be able to have a live audience for this. Uh, so a big thank you to all of those for the amazing work and their amazing patience as we changed uh, things repeatedly. Uh, can I thank you all for coming on this slightly dreary November night? It's very good of you uh, to come out for this. Uh, and again, can I say a particular thanks uh, to those friends and family who've traveled from far distant places, uh, mostly from Limerick, uh, <laughs> uh, to be here, but also from Cork as well. I shouldn't forget Cork. Uh, and, and a special thanks uh, to my mother, sister, uh, and, uh, and her husband, <coughs> Dennis. Uh, it's very good to, to have you here this evening. Uh, as Gail said, there will be questions at the end, but only if they're not very hard questions. <laughs> uh, so with that, uh, let me launch into to the lecture. Uh, so Shakespeare then, from the periphery. In June 2008, a man wearing an oversized Vivian Westwood t-shirt uh, with a very large fish on the front, lightweight trousers, loafers with no socks, and a lot of jewellery unexpectedly appeared in the office of Richard Kuta, the head librarian at the, the Folger Shakespeare Library in Washington, D.C. He brought with him a box of cigars and a book. The cigars were Cuban, and the book was a copy of the 1623 first collected edition of Shakespeare's plays, conventionally known as the First Folio, or F1 for short. The oddly dressed visitor was this man, Raymond Scott, and he claimed that he had discovered the volume in the family villa of some friends in Cuba, where he said it had been kept in a wooden Bible box that had been in the family since 1877, having originally been brought to Cuba from Spain. Scott indicated that he had come to the Folger because he wished to have the book authenticated. And he noted that his intention was that if it turned out to be a genuine copy of the first folio, he would sell it at auction, splitting the proceeds with his Cuban friends. Scott left the volume, and indeed the cigars, in the care of the Folger librarian, who called in Stephen Massey, formerly of Christie's Auctioneers, to help verify whether the book was in fact actually an authentic copy of the first folio volume. Massey was very quickly able to do so, but he also noticed certain peculiarities in the volume, which called its supposed Cuban provenance seriously into question. The book that Scott brought to the Folger, and here it is, had had its covers and preliminary pages and spine all stripped away, and it had been scarred of all identifying marks. But nevertheless, Massey was able to recognize that the volume was almost certainly the copy of the folio that had been stolen from Durham University some time previously, while on display in an inadequately secured uh, exhibition cabinet. <laughs> Scott 
who had brought the book to the Washington Library was, as it happens, from Washington. But not Washington, D.C., however, but Washington, Tyne and Weir, <laughs> which is less than a half an hour's drive away from, you've guessed it, <laughs> Massey phoned the FBI, who in turn contacted the British authorities, and it wasn't long before Scott, who by this point had returned to the UK, found himself, well, I believe the phrase is, helping the police with their inquiries. <laughs> In the run-up to his subsequent tri trial, Scott became something of a tabloid celebrity. An eccentric fantasist, he enjoyed an extravagant lifestyle, sometimes turning up to court in a chauffeur-driven limousine <laughs> and spraying journalists with champagne, though all the while he was actually living at home with his 82-year-old mum. <laughs> Scott had something of a record with the local police, uh, mostly for identity theft and petty crime. At the trial, the Crown Prosecution Service called in the renowned Shakespeare expert Anthony James West to give evidence with regard to the provenance of the supposed Cuban copy of F1. West concluded with certainty that the Scott folio was indeed the stolen Durham volume. Having doggedly stuck to his Cuban tall tale all along, Scott now finally conceded that the volume he had brought to the Folger was the Durham copy, but he insisted that he himself had not been the one who stole it. In the absence of clear evidence tying him directly to the theft, Scott was convicted of the lesser charges of handling stolen goods and of removing stolen property from the UK, and he was sent to prison for sentences of six years and two years, respectively, for each crime. As for the folio itself, it was eventually returned by the police to Durham, where it was again placed on display, though this time, I'm happy to say, in a more secure cabinet. <laughs> the saga of the loss and recovery of the Durham folio is an intriguing story in itself, but it also helps nicely to indicate the various ways uh, the position of centrality, sorry, in various ways, the position of centrality that Shakespeare has come to occupy in our culture. In bringing the stolen volume specifically to the Folger Shakespeare Library, Scott was taking it not just to the greatest library uh, dedicated to Shakespeare's memory, but also geographically to a location that is at the very heart of Western power. So here we have a map of uh, central Washington. You can see the Capitol building here where the House of Representatives and the Senate are located, and back here is the Folger Library. Uh, and just to remind you what the front of that Capitol building looks like, here's a recent photograph of <laughs> So going back to the map again, you can see the Folger here, and in between the Folger uh, and the Capitol building, we have the Supreme Court, and we have the Library of Congress, so you could not get a more central location. 
If you stand outside the Folger, in fact, you can see the dome of the Capitol building quite clearly in the immediate distance. Locating the Folger at the very heart of Washington had been a conscious choice on the part of Henry Clay Folger uh, when he decided to build a library to house his extraordinary and vast Shakespeare collection and to make it available for scholars to consult. He specifically wanted his library to be symbolically at the very heart of the nation. So our story of Raymond Scott's theft begins then geographically at the centre, the centre for good or ill, we might say, of Western power. But the story helps to illustrate how Shakespeare is at the centre in other ways too. After Scott was convicted, the chief prosecutor in the case welcomed the verdict, observing Raymond Scott is a dishonest conman and serial thief who found himself in possession of a national treasure. The sentence reflects the seriousness of his crime, handling a book recognized across the world as one of the most important literary works ever published. The language here again places Shakespeare at the center but now the centre of cultural power rather than political power. His collection of plays is a national treasure, constituting one of the most important literary works ever published, something that is recognised across the world. So Shakespeare then is located centrally in a variety of different ways. Well, we might ask ourselves, in the words of David Byrne, how did we get here? <laughs> how did Shakespeare end up in the centre in this way? The answer to this question, I want to suggest, is that Shakespeare's journey to the centre begins, and repeatedly begins, specifically from the periphery. To help to bring this a little more clearly into focus, I would ask you to imagine a playgoer in mid-1590s London, someone who has been to see the second and third parts of Shakespeare's trilogy of plays about King Henry VI, which were performed for the first time in the theatre precisely at this time. Imagine that this playgoer has discovered that the text of the plays have become available to purchase in print. So how might she discover this? How might she discover that they're available? Well, it was a common enough practice in this period for printers to run off extra copies of the title pages of books so that they could be posted up around town as adverts. What then would our would-be purchaser of the plays have seen if she had encountered these adverts around London. Well, she would have seen these. These are the title pages of the two plays in question, uh, two parts of Henry VI. If she'd examined the imprints included on these title pages, here they are, uh, uh, our play purchaser would have registered that one play had been printed by Thomas Creed, and the other had been printed by P.S., the initials of Peter Short. 
she would also have not noted that both plays had been produced for the publisher Thomas Millington, and both plays indicated that the books were to be had from Millington's shop under St. Peter's Church in Cornwall. This final piece of information might have caused our book buyer to pause Cornwall. It's a long way from London. But if she'd been a regular book buyer, she might have been likely to have recognized Creed and Short as London-based printers, and she might well have been shrewd enough to have recognized that it was highly likely, highly unlikely rather, that it would be necessary for her to make an 800-kilometer round trip just to buy these two plays. Instinctively, she would instead have most likely, most likely have headed to St. Paul's Cathedral. You can see St. Paul's here dominating the London skyline in this contemporary uh, print of London. So if we zoom in, we can see it a wee bit closer there. The churchyard of St. Paul's Cathedral was the centre of the London publishing trade in the early modern period, with publishing businesses clustered in particular in the northeast section of the yard. You see a reconstruction of what that might have been. Looked like this is still from a recent a virtual reality reconstruction of the churchyard. Arrived in the churchyard, our would-be play purchaser might have inquired about where she should best go to find the two Henry VI plays. Publishers at the time were a close-knit community regulated and overseen by the stationer's company trade organization. So at any one of the shops in the churchyard, our book buyer would surely have encountered somebody who could have told her that Thomas Millington, supposedly of Cornwall, uh, was actually to be found at the top of Corn Hill. As we can see here, in another one of Millington's books printed by Peter Short, this time with the correct version of his address in the imprint. Now, St. Peter's Church, if we go back to the map, was over <laughs> here. Sorry, <laughs> took me a minute to find it. So Peter's is over here, some ways distant from Paul's uh, over there. And we can see the spire of St. Peter's more clearly. There it is, if we zoom in on it. So St. Peter's was not as far away as Cornwall, admittedly, uh, but it was still a bit of a hike from uh, St. Paul's Churchyard, uh, the center of the publishing trade. So if, having reached uh, Millington's shop at St. Peter's, our book buyer had found Millington himself in attendance and had asked him specifically for his two Shakespeare plays, it's possible that Millington might not have known exactly what it was that she wanted. Millington may very well have bought the plays without knowing or indeed caring who had written them. He had, after all, published both titles without including the author's name anywhere in the books. It doesn't appear on the title page, doesn't appear anywhere else. Supposing then that Millington, if he had indeed been puzzled by what his customer was looking for, 
had invited her to search through his stock to see whether she could find the plays for herself. What would she have encountered in Millington's shop? Well, certainly for one thing, she would have come across many stacks of single-sheet ballads, like this one, being the text uh, of a certain Luke Hutton's lamentation immediately before he was hanged. Such ballads were Millington's primary stock in trade as a publisher. Ballads our play purchaser might have come across in the shop would likely have included uh, the pitiful lamentation of Rachel Mary, the poor widow of Clopthall in Kent, the first part of the wanton wife of Westminster. You may be, set, you may be seeing a trend here. <laughs> and a woeful ballad of a knight's daughter in Scotland who was murdered by her husband. Beyond these stacks of single-sheet publications, she would likely also have encountered more substantial topical and sensationalist works by Millington such as the lamentable discourse of the burning of Teverton and a most certain report of a monster born at Otteringham. If her book buyer did finally in her persistence unearth the text that she wanted, and if she then glanced through them before purchasing, she might or might not have recognized them as the plays she had seen performed in the theater. The texts that Millington published were, in fact, shorter versions of the play, of the plays, rather different from the longer versions that would subsequently be included in the first folio collection. Standing there in Millington's shop with the play texts finally in her hands, it's quite possible that her imagined tenacious book buyer might have experienced a certain sense of disappointment. The plays themselves would essentially have been throwaway pamphlets. Both texts would have felt rather flimsy, with simple stab stitching down the left-hand side, since most plays were sold unbound in this period. It would not have been too surprising then if, as she walked back down uh, Corn Hill, our imagined book buyer had asked herself whether the game had in the end been worth the candle, or indeed we might say the shoe leather. By contrast with the centralized Shakespeare of our own period then, Shakespeare at this earliest period is peripheral in every sense. In the mid-1590s, Shakespeare's dramatic work is hard to find. It's being sold not at the center of the publishing trade in St. Paul's, but from an obscure shop some distance away, a shop whose very address, as printed in the plays, is confusing and misleading. In that shop, Shakespeare's plays sit side by side with disposable topical texts, and it's probable uh, that this is precisely how Millington himself, as publisher, would have seen the plays, as no different, in essence, from the ballads and sensationalist pamphlets that he also published. As far as Millington was concerned, far from being great literature, these plays were just more grist to his normal, low-level commercial mill. In publishing the Henry VI plays, Millington was probably responding to a vogue in the theatre at the time 
for plays specifically about English kings. He was one of a number of smaller scale publishers who took a gamble on there being a market for printed versions of these plays, which were being performed at the time across the river on the South Bank. And for Millington, that gamble paid off. The demand for his first editions of the Henry VI plays was sufficiently strong that he issued second editions of both texts just a couple of years later, an indication that the first edition had sold out. So Millington proved then that there was money to be made from publishing these texts. Thus, he can be said to have established proof of concept that issuing them was a worthwhile venture. And where Millington led, others soon followed, with a steady stream of Shakespeare plays making their way into print in the wake of his editions. Ultimately, this process culminated in the appearance of the elaborate first folio volume in 1623, sold primarily at Edward Blunt's shop, The Black Bear, which was right in the very heart of St. Paul's Churchyard, a long way in every sense from Cornhill. It, wa it was then, we can say, Millington's efforts in the periphery that led to Shakespeare's ultimate progression to the centre. From Millington's time onward, publishing ventures initiated specifically in the periphery can be said, century by century, to have continued to be important to the process of centralising Shakespeare. By the beginning of the 18th century, the, play the playwright's work had become the publishing property of Jacob Tonson, whose family firm would dominate literary publishing in London for about 75 years. The Tonson firm mostly produced lavish, expensive, multi-volume, collected works editions of Shakespeare, such as Alexander Pope's very beautiful edition of 1725, uh, which, if you include the expense of having it bound, would have cost a total of about seven guineas, seven pounds, seven shillings, uh, which was a huge amount of money uh, in 1725. The Thompson firm were less interested in issuing editions of individual plays, but when they did so, they were also priced quite expensively. Uh, so here is an individual uh, Thompson edition uh, from 1729. If you have fabulously good eyesight, you'll be able to see that it says price one shilling down at the bottom of the page. If you don't have fabulously good eyesight, you'll have to take my word for it that that is what it says. Uh, so a shilling for this uh, edition uh, of Julius Caesar in 1733, so 12 pennies a shilling uh, it costs to buy. At that price, assembling a complete edition of the works of Shakespeare, play by play, uh, would have cost around about two pounds. Again, uh, a lot of money uh, in the early 18th century. The effect of all of this was, in essence, to restrict access to printed Shakespeare to quite a select readership in this period. Uh, this, we might say, constitutes centrality as a form of exclusivity. The Thompson firm felt it could demand whatever price it wanted for Shakespeare, because the Thompson firm believed that the rights they had acquired were valid in perpetuity. So they bought the rights expecting that they would hold the rights forever, in essence. 
1734, however, this contention was put to the test by a certain Robert Walker, who argued, in effect, that by the 1730s, such older rights had actually expired, and the plays had entered what we would now call the public domain, rendering them common property, freely available for any publisher to issue. Now, Robert Walker actually had a lot in common with Thomas Millington, in that much of his career had been spent producing short, uh, topical, sensationalist texts, such as uh, The Life of Thomas Neves, The Noted Street Robber, Executed at Tyburn for Shoplifting, uh, and also Robin's Panegyric, or the Norfolk Miscellany, containing several scarce and curious pieces. Walker also had a lucrative sideline in the manufacture and sale of patent medicines. Thus, for instance, an advert in the London and Country Journal in September 1740 declared that that inestimable cordial, Daffy's Elixir Salutis, is now sold at Daffy's Elixir Warehouse, kept by R. Walker, printer in Fleet Lane, London. The Elixir having been celebrated for a great number of years for the many cures it has performed in most distempers and the re relief it has given in chronical cases as also being adapted to every age, sex, and constitution. Later in life, Walker took to styling himself Dr. Robert Walker, <laughs> brackets MD, <laughs> though he had, in fact, no medical qualifications whatsoever. Walker tangled with the law a few times over the course of his career, not, I should say, for selling snake oil, which was perfectly legal, but for publishing pamphlets critical of the government of the day. He was, then, no stranger to confrontation and conflict. In, 1930, sorry, in 1737, he turned to publishing editions of Shakespeare's plays. So here is his edition of Hamlet from that year. Initially, he sold these editions at fourpence, which was, as we've seen, a third of the standard price for a Shakespeare play at that time. Now, the Thompson firm could quite literally not afford simply to ignore what Walker was doing. And what happened next is detailed by Walker himself in an advertisement included in his edition of the second part of Henry IV. The Tonson's lawyer Briggs was instructed to write to Walker, informing him Mr. Tonson would spend a thousand pounds before he should go on, and likewise have him locked up in a jail, and it would be the ruin of him and his family. After receiving the letter, Walker notes he went to see Tonson, but the publisher being ill at the time of the stone, Walker gave his servant a message to pass on to him, calmly informing Tonson that he would try the issue by consent with Mr. Tonson, either at law or equity. 
Elsewhere, in a further advertisement included in his edition of Othello, Walker assured Thompson that he was not one of those poor noodles who would be frightened by their insolent threats. Indeed, in the Othello advert, Walker further declares, they have had the assurance to say that they would sue me. Why don't they do it? Here is term come, and no bill in chancery, nor action at common law. Whether by design or accident, Walker had in fact exposed a crucial weakness in, in the Thompson firm's position. The company couldn't risk initiating legal proceedings against Walker for publishing Shakespeare for the simple reason that if his reading of the time-limited nature of copyright uh, were to be upheld in court, uh, then not just Shakespeare, but all the firm's most valuable older literary properties would be confirmed as being in the public domain. Unwilling to take the risk of challenging Walker in court, the Thompson firm instead decided to set out to undersell him, issuing their own cheap spoiler series in the hope of driving him out of business. The two publishers then began a race to the bottom price-wise, with the cost of an individual play tumbling all the way down to just a single penny, so a twelfth of the standard price uh, uh, that was typical at the time, uh, and in fact a sixth of what a play had cost, even in Shakespeare's own time a hundred years previously. I've suggested that what Millington affected in the earliest period of Shakespeare publishing was that he provided proof of concept that publishing the plays was a commercially viable proposition. In the instance of Walker, what we see affected is a significant raising of Shakespeare's general popularity. Suddenly the market was flooded with unprecedentedly cheap editions of the playwright's work, with the result that more people than ever could buy the plays and read them. And there is an argument to be made, I think, that, uh, that with an expanded readership came an increasingly popular desire to see the plays <coughs> being performed. So David Garrick, the most celebrated actor of the 18th century, here he is reading a copy of Macbeth, began his career in the theatre just a few short years after Walker and Thompson had commenced issuing their cheap editions of the plays. And he seems very quickly to have registered a significant demand for performances of Shakespeare's plays. Taking over the management of Drury Lane, he routinely staged the playwright's work, transforming the theatre into, as he styled it himself, the House of Shakespeare. In 1769, Garrick organized a Shakespeare Jubilee celebration in Stratford and Avon, initiating what George Bernard Shaw would later call the cult of bardolatry, and also, we might say, single-handedly launching the Stratford tourist industry. <laughs> Despite the pressure brought to bear on him, Walker succeeded in producing a complete run of Shakespeare plays. Once the publishing war of the 1730s had played itself out, however, the Thompson firm 
re-established their traditional business model, putting their prices back up to the original levels. Ultimately, in 1774, the reading of the copyright situation which Walker had offered 40 years previously was confirmed in a legal decision which finally established that publishing rights were indeed not perpetual and that older texts, as Walker had argued, were freely available within a public domain. But even in the wake of this decision, however, the cost of buying editions of Shakespeare remained relatively high, since the general tendency within the London publishing trade at the time uh, relied on gaining high profit margins on relatively low numbers of sales, something that is in fact not entirely unheard of even in our own time. <laughs> even through much of the 19th century then, editions of Shakespeare remained relatively expensive. <laughs> Catch up. <laughs> Sorry, that's a, a Bill Bailey moment. <laughs> Over the course of this period, however, the size of the reading public greatly expanded, largely due to the growth of a formal educational system which drove levels of literacy progressively upwards, with particularly more and more working class children being drawn into education. The general run of London publishers were slow to register the significance of these developments, but one publisher who came himself from an impoverished background did grasp the implications of this expanded readership. And that publisher was a guy called John Dix. From early in his career, John Dix collaborated closely with G.W.M. Reynolds, the popular uh, novelist and proprietor of Reynolds' weekly newspaper, a journal of democratic progress and general intelligence, <laughs> which has been described as the leading working class newspaper in England in this period. So Dix served as publisher, sorry, as printer, for much of Reynolds' work, including Reynolds Weekly. Through his experience of working with the author and publisher, Dix registered the fact that there was an expanding working class readership that was, for the most part, not being adequately served by the traditional London publishing trade. So he came to realize that if, in his own publishing ventures, he were to reduce his profit margin to the lowest possible level, he would be able to sell books at an unprecedentedly, unprecedentedly cheap price. And the sheer volume of share sales he would gain thereby would mean that his wafer-thin profit margins would ultimately amount to a very substantial profit. Dix thus embarked on a program of offering no-frills editions of standard canonical texts for sale at the lowest possible price he could manage. In 1864, the year of the tercentenary of Shakespeare's birth, he began publishing cut-price editions of, the Shakespeare, of Shakespeare's works. So as we can see from this contemporary advert, the project was styled specifically 
the people's edition of Shakespeare, with the reading public being offered two complete plays for a penny, half the cost of what plays had cost, even in the final stretch of the Walker-Thompson price war a hundred years previously. Having issued the plays in pairs in this way, Dix next gathered the texts into a hardback volume, which he issued for just two shillings. When this edition proved successful, he decided to reconfigure it, offering it in paper covers for just one shilling, uh, hardly more than a farthing a play. And to put this a little further into perspective, this is the same amount which our mid-1590s book buyer would have paid just for the two Henry VI plays, uh, which cost, of course, sixpence each. It's noteworthy that by now the rhetoric of Dick's advertising is decisively class-orientated. Uh, to the working classes, Dick's shilling Shakespeare uh, for the people. Uh, Dix, as well as aiming to make money, was also seeing his project as programmatically political. The shilling edition, sorry, skip on there. The shilling edition was far and away the cheapest text of Shakespeare that had ever been offered to the public. Four years after it first appeared, the publisher himself estimated that he had sold about 700,000 copies of the text. And it continued to sell. A decade and a half after it first appeared, Dix was still running adverts for it. Now as part of a greater publishing list headed uh, the cheapest <laughs> books in the world. <laughs> Given that the print runs of, for complete works editions traditionally had numbered in the low thousands, it seems likely to me that it is very possible that Dix may well have brought more copies of Shakespeare to the market than all of his predecessors combined. And of course, he also greatly expanded the range of, Shakespeare, of Shakespeare's readership as he specifically targeted a new working class audience. We've seen then that Thomas Millington, away from the centre of the London publishing trade up on Corn Hill, demonstrated that Shakespeare's plays were worth publishing, that Robert Walker, small-time publisher and quack remedy salesman, was directly responsible for the market being flooded with cheap editions of Shakespeare early in the 18th century, and secondarily seems to have contributed to the rise of Shakespeare in the theatre. And we've seen that John Dix made Shakespeare's works available in an unprecedentedly cheap form, opening up Shakespeare's readership in a significant way in the process. But what, we might ask, of Shakespeare in our own era? Can we say that there is a contemporary equivalent to such peripheral but historically important figures as Millington, Walker, and Dix in our own time? Well, the answer, I think, is yes, and the person in question is this man. This is Grady Ward. He's eccentric, reclusive, mysterious, but he is also, strange as it may seem, one of the most important figures 
in the entire publishing history of Shakespeare. What do we know about him? In truth, very little. Early in his career, he worked as a senior systems programmer at Apple, but he left the company in 1989 to pursue the Moby project, which was primarily dedicated to creating a set of digital lexicographical resources, but for some reason best known to himself and unre unrevealed to the rest of us, Ward decided also to create a digital edition of Shakespeare's work, uh, a project which he called the Moby Shakespeare. The files for the Moby Shakespeare could be acquired on disk by sending $10 to Ward at an address in California, or they could be had for free via an FTP link to a server in Sweden. I'm almost tempted to ask how many people know what an FTP, still know what an FTP link is. Uh, had, Moby, had the Moby Shakespeare continued only to be distributed on disk and via file transfer protocol, we probably wouldn't still be talking about it today anymore then we talk about other essentially hobbyist digital projects from the same period. But Ward's release of the files coincided with a very significant change in the way in which the web is accessed, in that he made the files available just at the point when Mosaic was launched. And Mosaic was the first recognizably modern web browser, and its launch essentially paved the way for the web as we understand it today. One consequence of the launch of Mosaic was that a range of different early web developers took Ward's digital files and used them to create online editions of Shakespeare, which they made freely available uh, via dedicated websites. So we have early, rather primitive sites such as this one, hosted uh, by MIT, or this Australian site created by Matty Farrell. We also have uh, more sophisticated, more recent sites, uh, such as the open source Shakespeare created by Eric Johnson. All of these online editions use Ward's Moby text, as do, in fact, almost all free-to-access Shakespeare apps, uh, <coughs> including, for instance, this one uh, by Eurofield Information Solutions and offered as the TurboSearch <coughs> Complete Works, which acknowledges its source text here, uh, the, Moby, the original Moby text created by Ward. In the context of this present talk, the significance of these sites is the sheer amount of online traffic they have attracted. So if we return to Farrow's site, for example, we can see that within seven years of launching this resource, Farrow was claiming to have had eight million hits on the site. Now, some while back I was in contact with Eric Johnson regarding the open source Shakespeare, and he very kindly uh, shared some of his visitor statistics with me. So here we can see the usage over the period June 2006 to January 2020. During this time, there were more than 27 million sessions 
on Eric Johnson's site uh, from just under 19 million distinct users, so 19 million different people uh, using the site over time. And this is Johnson's top 20 breakdown of usage for 2019, arranged by country. Uh, top of it is predictable enough. I guess we've got the, the US and the UK, but we have Ireland at a very creditable seventh there. Uh, and then some slightly surprising entries. We've got Pakistan at 14 and the UEA at 18. So an, an odd distribution of usage. Uh, for, this, for the site. Looking at the confirmed numbers we have from some of these sites and using them to project likely totals for other such sites and apps, it seems to me that a very conservative estimate of the number of users who have accessed some version of the Moby Shakespeare might be something in the region of about 75 million, about 75 million using these sites in total. Uh, I've run that number by Eric Johnson, and he feels it's a, a reasonable and reasonably conservative estimate. In talking about the Schilling text, I registered that Dix probably put more copies of Shakespeare into circulation than all of his predecessors combined. But Grady Ward's Moby Shakespeare goes much further than this, dwarfing the circulation of, of all previous editions including Dick's Schilling Shakespeare. Viewed from this perspective, it's striking that Shakespeare Online should be overwhelmingly the creation not of academics or of prestigious publishers, not, in other words, of those at the center of the Shakespeare universe, but rather at root of a somewhat eccentric figure whose interest in Shakespeare was, like Thomas Millington's, probably marginal at best. If Paul's Churchyard was the central site for cultural dissemination in England in Shakespeare's time, then the computer screen is surely the closest equivalent for cultural dissemination globally in our own period. Shakespeare traveled from peripheral St. Peter's to central St. Paul's thanks in no small measure to the efforts of Thomas Millington. His position at the center of general literary culture in England was cemented by Robert Walker, and his broader popularity across a wide audience was facilitated by John Dix. Repeatedly, I would suggest, it has been in the periphery that Shakespeare's central position has been forged. And so it is, too, in our own time. The Shakespeare of the present and future has come once again, and as always, to the centre, from the margins. Thank you.
about the history of the Taimoriya Library. As well as being heard. The Hub is a space. Contemplating Ireland through the communities created by Coral The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Here's to the next 10 years.